Just one match remains in the Conmebol World Cup qualifiers, but the drama still persists. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the World Football Index South American Football Show, recapping round 17 of the Conmebol World Cup qualifiers. Just one round remains, but still just one ticket punched to Russia confirmed. I'm your host, Austin Miller, here in Chicago, joined on the show this week by both Adam Brandon and Simon Edwards. Adam, down in Chile, I hope you're doing well. Happy to have you on the show. I'm sure that the tension is is still thick, even with the win this round. Indeed, Austin, and good evening. Last night was was some mad scenes, hugging strangers on, on Chile's winner. It was that kind of night, but um, yeah, there's, there's, there's still a long way to go, and um, and Tuesday can't come soon enough. Also, of course, Simon Edwards with us from Medellin, Colombia. Simon, for a second there, it looked like this was going to be the easy podcast for you, and then all of a sudden it wasn't. Yeah, you know, I was feet up watching the Argentinian game, kind of enjoying their struggles. You know, oh, the Colombia girl's going to come. The Columbia goal comes and then, oh my God, no. So I've gone from very laid back and, and smug to slightly anxious and panicking because now, ooh, not good. But yeah, how, how you doing anyway, Austin? How's things? I'm doing well. It's been fun to just kind of sit back and engage in the drama. Of course, Brazil have had their World Cup spot booked since March. So it's been a time of experimentation. Uh, trip to La Paz without any pressure. A lot of oxygen consumed by the Brazilian players. Uh, we will get to that game last because it was the first and only game in Conmebol in this cycle that will mean absolutely nothing. Only one dead rubber. Pretty good for 18 rounds of football. Simon, I will come to you. Colombia 1, Paraguay 2. All of the goals came from the 79th minute on. Ramadel, Val- Ramadel Falcao scoring to open things for Colombia. At that point, they would have been World Cup bound. But then Padawai, out of nowhere, Cardoso and Sanabria get two back. It's a win for Padawai, and they find themselves right in the World Cup conversation. Simon, what went wrong? Oh, okay, uh, I'm going to try and uh, try and break this down. I mean, I think it's quite simple. It was a game of two halves, and by two halves, I mean 60 minutes and uh, 30 minutes at the end. Um, basically, Colombia were well set up, nice balance, the 4-2-3-1. They finally had... All of their best players to pick from. Um, Peckerman has really varied his selections, but I think general consensus is this is Colombia's strongest side at the moment. Perhaps Jerry Mina would have helped in defence. Um, and Abel Aguila isn't necessarily the best player, but he's definitely fulfills the role that Peckerman wants him to play in front of the defence. So everything was kind of, you know, not, not too exciting, but it was a very tough competitive game. Paraguay were very aggressive in their play. Um, keen to uh, slow the progress of Cuadrado and James and, and prevent them from opening up too too much space. A very tough competitive game. But Colombia had a good balance. Uh, the four in defence with uh, Zapata and Davinson Sanchez in the middle. Uh, the attacking fullbacks of Fabra and uh, Santiago Arias pushing on in front with uh, <clears throat> uh, Carlos Sanchez and Abel Aguila playing the ball. James Rodriguez uh, and then with Cuadrado and Cardona. Uh, and then uh, Falcal up front. So, you know, this cl- probably Colombia's strongest side. Um, really, the, the side that Peckerman's happy with, a good balance. Cuadrado was always drawing fouls, 
he was also very responsible in defence. There was a good balance. For me, Paraguay's weakness, and we saw it against Chile, is they, they pack the, the penalty area, but they leave quite a lot of space out wide. So I thought before the game, well, this is going to be key for Colombia, uh, with Arias and Fabra overlapping on the wings with Cuadrado and, uh, and James or, or Cardona on the other side. And, and that was the case. Uh, a lot of best, Colombia's best chances came from the fullbacks pushing on. Even towards the final minutes of the game, they were the biggest goal threat. Uh, the goal itself actually came uh, from Falcao. But the issue is, bef- uh, just before the goal came, and again, you know, they scored a goal, you would praise the changes. But what happened is Cuadrado came off and Teofilo Gutierrez came on. And Teofilo Gutierrez is a centre-forward who plays close to Falcao. He's basically played for Colombia quite a lot because he complements Falcao quite well. He does the link-up play that Falcao isn't necessarily suited to. If Falcao has somebody playing off him who does a lot of that connect, uh, connecting work with the midfield, it means that he can focus on getting in the right position for the for the ball into the box or over the top. So there is some sense to it. But what happened is they took off a right winger and brought on an, uh, an attacking midfielder centre-forward. Um, and then they did exactly the same thing again. And... It really, you know, took off Cardona, who, again, he, he does slow the game down slightly. He missed a good chance because of he was a bit, little bit ponderous in the penalty area with a good chance. But he's a, he's a player of good quality. Anyway, they took off Cuadrado and Cardona and brought on Jimmy Chara and Teofilo Gutierrez. Incidentally, or perhaps not, the two players representing the local side, uh, Junior, who actually play in Barranquilla. Um, I think that may be somewhat playing to the crowd, um, trying to lift the crowd. But it definitely ruined the shape of Colombia. They were very well balanced for much of the game. Not as incisive as they can be, but they they were controlled, they were balanced, and, and the goal came. And the thing is, as soon as the goal came, Paraguay pushed forward and Colombia were completely out of sorts. There was no protection for the fullbacks. And also, the fullbacks were the most important attacking option. So the fullbacks were expected to continue contributing an attack because that's where the space was out wide. But all of the Colombian players were in the middle. So when they lost the ball, they were very vulnerable out wide. You know, I just think it was it was disastrous. And then the two goals, again, some people have said, well, you know, Ospina made some mistakes. If it wasn't for the mistakes, Colombia would have won. Well, that's true. But from the 63rd minute onwards, the game was wide, wide open. And it really shouldn't have been. This is an important, important game for Colombia. They shouldn't have left it to chance. If they'd maintained the balance formation... They maintained the structure and the positions, kept players out wide, protected the fullbacks. They would have won the game, you know, but they they threw caution to the wind, took off Aguila again in the 86th minute and brought on Wilma Barrios, who's a defensive midfielder. But for the second Paraguay goal, he was actually in the opposition box and he didn't even get into the Colombian half of the field by the time Paraguay have scored. The guy who comes on to defend and protect the defence is not even in the Colombian half when they concede the second goal. In the right towards the end of the game, Santiago Arias broke down the right, rounded the keeper, had a few players in front of him and, and shot off balance, been criticised for that. The same with Fabio on the left, broke all the way down and crossed the ball into the box, straight into the keeper's hands, which, you know, they didn't make the best of those opportunities. But when your fullbacks are in the opposition penalty area in the 90, you know, 90th minute, 89th minute, and they don't perfectly execute the opportunity, you know, I, I, I think it's difficult to blame them. Not many fullbacks are going to be able to do that in terms of getting up and down. But the issue is more that the only attacking threat Columbia posed for much of the game was out wide. 
And with the changes, they packed the middle of the field where Paraguay were very strong, very combative. There was no space and they took away the width from Colombia and they took away the protection at fullback and it completely killed any sort of stability to the game. So for me, it was criminal, criminal changes that that didn't make any sense, that didn't maintain the stability. You know, Colombia's issue has been there's been a lack of consistency in the way they've played, in the personnel. And they had a solid team that was doing a job. And although Cuadrado wasn't having his best game, every time he got the ball, he was seemingly winning yellow cards. He's winning free kicks in key areas. Plus, he was getting back to protect Santi Arias at right back. So, yeah, for me, I think Peckerman has a lot of responsibility. You know, obviously, South American fans, a lot of the response is, Bicho Frio, you weren't tough enough, you weren't committed enough, you weren't working hard enough. But for me, the, the the structure of the team completely collapsed with the changes. I know this is a game Adam has watched, and he's watched that last 15 minutes a few times as well. It'd be interesting to what he see what he thinks about that. Before I go into that, do you think like complacency set in here with Colombia, which is of course kind of a historical problem in Colombian football? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone was kind of a little bit anxious, but also very very confident coming into this game. It was the stadium was sold out very, very early. There was fan parks all over Colombia. Outside the stadium, there was a big party ready for the final whistle. So while people were a little bit anxious, it was like, you know, we, we should feel anxious because we're not there yet. We need to win the game. But really, everyone was kind of ready for the party. And when they scored, it was, yes, we've done it. We're there. So they completely lost any discipline towards the end. And even when it was one all, you could see for the for the second Paraguay goal, about 20 seconds before Paraguay scored, there were six Colombian players in the Paraguay penalty area. And I understand, you know, you're winning the game, you concede, you immediately want to make a response, but there's just that's just insanity. Like, you need to kind of take note, take stock. You know, a draw wouldn't be an ideal, but a loss is disastrous, both in terms of morale and in terms of points. So, yeah, I just think, the 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 occasion, whereas Colombia approached much of the game in a very controlled way, the goal kind of lifted everyone and made everyone kind of go, okay, we're going to Russia, we're sorted, no problem. And it was the last fifteen minutes that that completely fell apart. Well, the Colombia players, I counted that they made between them at least eight bad decisions between scoring the goal, which put them one 0 up and conceding the goal, which saw them go 2-1 go down. I'll go into those eight in a minute, eight or so in a minute. But, yeah, the moment that really changed the game for me was the introduction of Oscar Cordoza for Samudio in midfield. Cordoza is a striker, so Paraguay changed their system. They had one more man in attack, one, one man less in midfield. And that attacking change brought about Colombia's first goal because Cardoza loses the ball with his back to goal about 35 yards out. Then Colombia break and Paraguay don't have the men in midfield to stop the break. Chara has room to play the pass to Falcao for the goal, 1-0 Colombia. Um, and at that point, you're thinking, you know, what a terrible decision from the Paraguay manager. But like I said before, I believe that complacency set in with Colombia at that point. Um, and they made a series of really bad decisions. Now, Simon has said quite a few of them already, 
But I do feel like they're worth repeating for anybody who didn't see the game or, or wants to watch it again. The big overall mistake they made, of course, was playing like they needed another goal when they were 1-0 up, when they didn't. And the only time in that kind of last 10, 15 minutes where they did the right thing, which was just to keep ball, which most Colombian teams are really good at anyway, just work the ball, make the opposition run. The one time they just did that, the crowd started doing oles. And I think that added to the feeling of complacency around the stadium. But yeah, j- just after it went 1-0, James Rodriguez, he, he has a chance where it's four on three and he tries the most difficult pass on and overhits it. That chance for 2-0 is gone. Then Paraguay have an opportunity, which is created where Davison Sanchez and Carlos Sanchez both go for, for the same header. Remember that because it's important for what happens in a few minutes' time. So, and that, and them going for the same header means that it leaves a Paraguay player unmarked who has a free shot on goal and Ospina saved well on that occasion. One other thing which is really clear in these last few minutes, and it is something that Simon mentioned, but it is unbelievable when you watch it back, especially if you didn't watch it live like me, is just how much the Colombia leave the wings unoccupied. So the Paraguay fullbacks and wingers have got so much space to run into. Anyway, another another error on a Colombia attack was Falcao. He, he he fails to lay it off to James Rodriguez on the edge of the box. He never looked up. Then just after that, they give a needless foul away. Okay, and this and this needless foul leads to pa- Paraguay's equalising. But I think, say if this is Paraguay, so the other way round. Uh, or Uruguay, another clever team, incomparable. You know, they just delay that free kick for as long as possible. You know, they, they try all the tactics, they protest against it, but none of that from Colombia. They give it away and then they get back kind of in position, but you can see that they're not particularly concentrating and the ball gets lobbed up. And again, the two Sanchez's, Davison and Carlos, both go for the same ball again in the air. That puts Ospina off, and it's well, I'm not sure if he got a hand to it or not, but it falls straight to a Paraguay player again, and from that they ended up scoring, and it, and it's one one. But even after that, and I know that Simon's mentioned a couple of these already, but you know Colombia have you know three decent chances to to win the game, and Chara was particularly guilty of a lack of composure on three occasions, but the one which really it must be really galling for Colombia is is the one involving Arias when he when he went past the keeper and failed to pass. It was a three on one chance, you know. It, it was just three Colombians against one, uh, just against the Paraguay goalkeeper at one point who was miles out of his, out of his box. It's ridiculous not to score from that position. Um, and even after that, seconds later, Fabra he's in acres of space in the box. He's got about four men waiting for the ball. And he crosses it in at a perfect height for the keeper to catch it. And from that, the keeper rolls it out. Paraguay go up the other end and score, like Simon says. And, you know, Colombia still got all their attackers in the other box with their heads on their hands, you know, not running back. It was, it was just completely bizarre to watch. Look at well, when I watched it back, I, I, I just didn't understand how Colombia got to that position where 
they're 1-0 up. You know, you just do anything you can to see it out. You know, gamesmanship, anything. You're, you're, you know, you're minutes away from the World Cup. You don't play any risk whatsoever. And, um, and, and it is something which could come back and to haunt the Colombians, unfortunately, for them. But, yeah, I think we've got to give some credit to Paraguay, who, who certainly seem more comfortable as the underdog on the road, I think it's, I think it's fair to say. You know, that's now victories over Argentina, Chile and, and Colombia away from home, which is very impressive in one campaign. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how they approach and deal with the pressure of that game at home to Venezuela, because if there has been a weakness to this Paraguay side, it is kind of winning those games you you expect them to. And they kind of failed to do that on a few occasions, like losing 4-1 at home to Peru, for example. And that's that's kind of sparked Peru's run of form, which we'll come on to later. But I think, I think Colombia can still be fairly confident of qualification. I don't think Simon should panic too much. There's a lot of scenarios which still see them go through. And I think Falcao's return to form this year has certainly been a big plus point. And he took his goal. He took his goal really well in this game. And, you know, a point is almost certainly enough in Lima for them. And I think they're more than capable of getting it if, if, they've, got their, if they've got their right heads on. Yeah, I think one of the concerns, just to finish up in this game, is that after the game, Peckerman said... Oof. That was weird. Isn't football weird? No idea what happened there. Ooh, what can we do? And it's like Adam has perfectly explained why they lost. You know, I've got a good idea why it fell apart. So it is worrying that the manager who continues to make these changes that destabilize the team, you know, you can't just change the system because you, it's not, you know, you can't just throw players on playing out of position. Teofilo Gutierrez is a second striker. He was playing on the left midfield. He's nothing about Teofilo Gutierrez, who's kind of a, not particularly pacey, fairly clinical in front of goal, has a few nice touches here and there around the box. Nothing about that screams left midfielder to me. And so it is concerning that combined with the completely random seeming selection, just players who shouldn't be anywhere near the Colombian national team continuing to get in. Farid Diaz was released from Nacional and sent off to Paraguay. If you're playing in the Paraguayan league, you probably shouldn't be playing for, for Colombia. Um, no disrespect, because <laughs> they were very tough, very organised, and, and 100%, if Paraguay were winning 1-0 in the 80th minute, they would have would have seen out the game and wouldn't have collapsed as Colombia did. So it's just really concerning that Peckerman, and again, he's not going to come out and go, oh, that was terrible, what, what was I doing? But it does. it is worrying that he hasn't necessarily identified the issues and Colombia always get worse in the final 15, 20 minutes of every game in, in the last few months. They make some changes. They often bring on Teofilo Gutierrez and Jimmy Chara, and they lose their shape. And that's not a dig necessarily at the players, but they're being brought on without having a specific role. They seem The team seems very well drilled for that 4-2-3-1. And the changes just seem to be like, go on, just run around and try and make something happen. And in these tight, tight games against very organised, smart teams, that is dangerous. And yeah, it's just very concerning that Colombia completely collapsed, both in terms of their organisation and, as Adam mentioned as well, some of the effort and the, the commitment towards the end was worrying. So yeah, I think Colombia can still do it. I, I would back the pace of Colombia on the counter with Cuadrado. You know, there's some other good options off the bench, the likes of um, 
Obviously, Carlos Baca has been out of form, but he's a very pacey player. Uh, you know, there's some quick players that Colombia can call on um, to kind of hit Peru on the counter-attack uh, with Cuadrado and so forth, Fabra breaking forward. So I think Colombia can get a goal and can get a result in Peru, but they just need to be smarter and tougher and, and more Uruguayan, more Paraguayan. We, you know, we can't just rely on what I think is a superior squad, but if you don't play smart and you don't play disciplines, then you're going to get hit with with these kind of results and yeah not a good day for Colombia. Well Simon obviously a difficult match for you and for a lot of other Colombians and, and that is maybe perfectly encapsulated in the the joy and, and then the ensuing despair that you can hear uh, here is how it sounded from a Colombian perspective as the match was going on. el espacio ahí bendito sea el señor tocayo para santi 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 saliendo santi santi sobre el centro engancha santi viene el de colombia el de colombia santi no le pudo pegar muy por el sector izquierdo de canto roberto para fabra 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 está solo fabra varón al centro viene radamel vuelve a salvar a antonio sea de cerdo la de todos los días por colombia fondo nacional de la porcicultura gol de paraguay gol de paraguay gol de falcao gol de falcao gol <risa> <risa> Compra, comer, pork. <risa> Come Gol de Paraguay. Paraguay. When I had the idea of inserting these commentaries into in, into this show, I wasn't expecting an advert for pork <risa> to override the Paraguayan winner. What's all that about, son? Well, yeah, I mean, pork is delicious and it's a nutritious meat that should be enjoyed, produced locally by Colombian farmers. You need. Well, you know, come on. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of a strange one. And the commentators just go, uh, goal for Paraguay, <laughs> as they come back from a commercial break discussing <laughs> pork. We still, had, we still had pictures, but, you know, the, the sound went off to a pork advert. Um, and, yeah, the commentators flatly just went, oh, it's a Paraguay goal. <laughs> We're screwed. <laughs> Bad news. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Completely surreal. Uh, you know, you got to pay the bills. <laughs> Well, let's move on from this one, guys, and let's move to another dramatic match. And, and Adam, I'll come to you. Chile 2, Ecuador 1. For 83 minutes, it seemed kind of ho-hum for Chile. An early goal from Eduardo Vargas. Jorge Valdivia playing a big role in, in setting him up. And so for Chile, they were 1-0 up for a long stretch. Had some opportunities to kind of kill this match off. I know, Adam, that's something that you'll bring up here that they failed to do. That allowed Ecuador back in it, and, and the Ecuadorians pounced kind of out of nowhere. Uh, Ibada pulling one back to level things at one, but it only stayed that way for a little more than a minute. Alexis Sanchez with the second goal for Chile, a 2-1 win for the hosts, 
And Adam, it was the three points that Chile absolutely needed from this match. And they got it, even if it was maybe a bit more difficult than they would have hoped. Yeah, they made it difficult for themselves, certainly. Where I want to start with this Chile match is really the atmosphere in the stadium, which was so much better than what was the case against uh, Paraguay last month, where it was just such a flat atmosphere before the game, as soon as the game started. You know, last night against Ecuador, it was 100% better. There's a real feeling of positivity around the side. A millionaire in this country, a guy called Farkas, he, he, he produced loads of these um, flags to wave around before, before the game, during the game, to help create a bit more of an atmosphere. There was a drum allowed into the stadium as well, which wasn't allowed last month, which helped to create an atmosphere. And, and just everybody's kind of sung their heart out, really, on the national anthem, and which usually happens, to be fair, but it did seem that extra bit loud in this one. And, and as soon as the game started, there were songs going. And if you listen back to kind of the Paraguay game, it's, it's played in almost complete silence throughout. So, yeah, um, well done to the organisers of this game because I really think it helped set the tone for a much more energetic and much more exciting Chile performance than what we've seen last month from them. Yeah, so, you know, Chile dominated the opening stages and eventually took the lead for a smashing finish from Eduardo Vargas inside the box after tenacious work from Sanchez and a nice cutback from one of your favourite players, Austin, Jorge Valdivia. After that, really, Chile should have made this game a lot more safe. There was a glorious chance for uh, Mena in the first half. And also a very good one for Valdivia near the start of the second half. So you're thinking, you know, really Chile should be at least two up. Then Arturo Vidal, um, I think it was around the hour mark of the game, um, picked up a yellow card, which means that he will miss the Brazil game. And for a few minutes, you could see that Vidal was thinking about this uh, yellow card and it kind of put him off the put him off his game. And Ecuador, it was the only time in the game where you really felt they had a bit of control over Chile. And it was looking really worrying. But credit to the crowd again. The crowd sung Vidal's name, lifted him up. The manager, Juan Antonio Pizzi, also was shouting instructions to him to lift him up as well. And in the end, it was Vidal's tenacity by the byline just outside the box, which led to Chile's winner. You know, it was it was despair uh, just a minute before that, where kind of out of the blue, Ecuador grabbed an equaliser. It, it did it did uh, originate from a mistake from higher, I think it was. Ecuador really didn't deserve that. They were pretty poor on the night. The minute after Ecuador scored their equaliser was really key in this game because it was a bit bizarre what Ecuador did really. Just after the goal, Chile managed to kind of pin Ecuador back into their half. And Ecuador ended up playing about with the ball in kind of the last third of their of their half. And to do that against one of the best pressing sides in the world is suicide, really. And, and um, Vidal robbed, uh, robbed an Ecuador defender of the ball. Name escapes me. He pulled it back for Felipe Gutierrez to have a shot on goal. Um, it was well saved by Banguera, but it went straight to the feet of Alexis Sanchez, who who rolled it home for 2-1. 
with absolute scenes, as I mentioned in the intro to this pod, you know, the whole pub I was in, you know, exploded at that moment. Uh, some people in tears, you know, it was a hugging strangers moment as well. You know, after the game as well, just to see how it means to people here, you know, you saw Valdivia in the, after a game in in a in an interview, you know, he, he broke down in tears as well, talking about how much it meant to sort of play a part in this game and uh, and to help Chile win it. Um, I think you can also hear it here in the in Chile's most famous current commentator, Claudio Palmer. Here's his commentary on that winning goal for for Chile. Enjoy. As you can hear there, you know, the emotion certainly got to the commentator as it as it did to everyone here. But, you know, there, there's a big match still to come on Tuesday and it's Brazil away, a place, you know, Chile have never won before. Uh, Brazil have never lost a World Cup qualifier at home. But they do go there knowing that a point pretty much guarantees fifth place. So that's huge motivation right there. The Dow is suspended, although... I, ju- I was just reading tonight that the Chilean FA are trying to appeal that yellow card. I, I, I can't see it being overturned. I think there'll probably be a couple of other changes as well. Bosch Ayur will come back in for Mena. Bosch Ayur missed this game through suspension. Um, Arangis, who missed this game through in- injury, he's expected to maybe play a part in Brazil. Whether he's going to be able to start or not, uh, I'm not so sure. Um, I know that Leverkusen in Germany certainly don't think he's fit enough to, to play any part. Of course, there's also no Marcelo Diaz in this Chile squad as, as he wasn't called up at all by Pizzi, which was a major talking point here, you know, before the match. So Marcelo Diaz, you know, a player who's been a vital cog in Chile's system really over the last few years, you know, dropped completely from the squad, certainly seemed harsh, certainly when Chile had injuries in that area. And of course now, 
but they are suspended for, for the Brazil game. I also do want to just say, you know, Pablo Hernandez, who was declared unfit about a week ago for this game, uh, but Chile seemed to wrap him up in cotton wool for this past week, and, and he ended up playing a major role in Chile controlling this game. So so credit to him. But yeah, overall, I thought Chile's energy levels in this game were, were back to normal, really, and the quality of football much better than what we saw last month with Vidal and Sanchez really stepping up when it when it matters again. So I'm already getting very nervous for Tuesday. That's everything from my point of view, Javier, as as a as a Chile follower. I'm sure that you are very disappointed to see how this World Cup qualifying campaign has eventually panned out for Ecuador, especially after that flying start. So maybe you can tell me and the listeners, Javier, exactly kind of what's gone wrong for Ecuador over this World Cup qualifying campaign and also what went wrong in this game because they made some strange decisions, especially at 1-1, like I've just said. Let's start with the positive, with this the short version of the answer. It's a short part of the answer. So the positive is that this nightmare is almost over. So once... Our last game, it's over, finishes, we can start thinking about the future. This World Cup qualifier has been the most painful torture football has given me in decades. We started as a machine, right? Goals flying, solid defense, leadership, possession, transition, maturity, composure, precision, everything that you want. Like some of my colleagues here would like to say, a lot of pace and power on the wings. Everything was working, right? And at the end, like, we still were like, I think that before the game against Chile, we were the second team with the most shots against our rivals in the qualifier. But obviously, we didn't score much. And throughout the World Cup qualifiers, our defense, we changed so many central backs that we just kept making stupid mistakes and stupid mistakes. And we tried new central backs and nothing worked and nothing worked. So everything started piling on, right? And then the locker room drama started, right? Unfortunately, in Ecuador, there's a, there's a lot of locker room leaders that use their influence to try to force some of the coaches or some, some of their players' friends into the, into the team, right? And that pressure, that drama carry on, right? And then the results started, started not to happen, and that was just a poisonous mixture, right? And then we had the transition in the, in the Ecuadorian Football Federation, in which I really don't want to get into much detail, which hurt the team as well. So it started piling up. And then Quintero started reminding everybody of what their, their, of his main mistakes, right? His main flaws as a coach. So with this poisonous combination, the team started coming down. And then the results started not to happen. And then we started to, to shoot, but not to score. Then our defense became a disaster. Our main players started to lose in form. Our players outside of Ecuador started to lose in playing time. And that, that hurts the team a lot, right? So that brings us to the game against Chile. 
in which Jorge Celico, which is a very good professor as a coach, like he has been great teaching fundamentals, teaching basics, just showing like his teams how to play like really nice, really beautiful football. Like for example, Universidad Católica during the first round of the Ecuadorian tournament this year played the most beautiful football Ecuador has seen in quite a while, right? Passing, transition, moving transition into zones, having links between players and lines, just beautiful. So I personally, after analyzing Universidad Católica at the beginning of the tournament, I had my hopes up because for me, after Quintero was gone and after there was nothing left to lose, right? We just had to go out and play hard and get try to get the three points because that was this is it. Like if we didn't get the result against Chile, we were out, right? So I had my hopes up because a I thought that I would see a team filled with pa- with passion, with fire, with desire, and unfortunately I didn't get that. And then on the other hand, I expected to have some kind of resemblance of a Jorge Celico team. Right. Of course, like with a few games and like two training sessions before a game, you cannot really install a system. Right. But there were some things that didn't didn't match up. Right. For example, if you're Jorge Celico and you're planning to establish a transition passing system in which you can have passing from line to line, your center attacking midfielder is not Michael Arroyo. Your two defensive midfielders cannot be players that cannot really create chances in transition, like Orejuela and Intriago. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that Intriago had a good game, even though he was a debutant. And Orejuela didn't, was, wasn't really relevant, right? But there were a few things that I couldn't understand. Like, for example, you get to play against Chile, in which you know that their main weakness in defense is like a aerial game, right? So when you started striker is Roberto Latu Cordones, which is a monster on the air, right? And then you have wings that they do anything but crossing the air. So that I didn't understand that, for example. Then I really liked Arboleda. He was great, and I think that he's a future center back for sure in Ecuador. But on the other hand, also, Celico mistake. How do you get Tonio Valencia to play right back in a game that you know that you won't be using his offensive prowess and then you'll have you'll be hurt and harmed by his very, very incompetent defensive attention or awareness? Which at the end, it was funny because I, when, once I saw Alexis Sanchez and Valdivia leaning towards the left at the beginning, like in the middle of the first half, I knew we were in, we were in trouble. Because that means that they saw Valencia and say, ooh, this is the weak spot. I'm going to take it now, right? So I tweeted, I'm very concerned about Valencia playing right back against Chile. Two minutes afterwards, Chile scored from a Valencia mistake. So, and of course, people want to say, like, where was Renato Ibarra in this in this uh, equation? And I've been saying for quite a while now that Renato Ibarra, I still very confused about how how does he get playing time in Ecuador? Like, his curriculum and his resume is literally nothing. And every time he has, he has one game, one very good game with Ecuador, and that's it. In all his playing time throughout World Cups and and Copa Americas, nothing, right? So, I'm still confused. So, then we get scored, then comes halftime, 
Jorge Célico screws up the subs again. He subs out Ayrton Preciado, leaving Renato Ibarra on the field, leaving Toño Valencia right back, leaving Arroyo on the field, which he was awful throughout the game. He Hell gave yeah. out I, I know that, you know, on anybody who listens to the Libertadores pods, you know, will know that I'm a big fan of um, Ayrton Preciado. I just didn't understand him taking him off at half time because for me in the first half, he was Ecuador's most dangerous player. Yeah, there was a couple of occasions where he got free on 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 the on the on the left and was cutting in, and you and you could see that the Chile players were a little bit afraid of his pace and his ability to cut in and shoot. Um, so, I, and the player they replaced him with, uh, forget his name. Who did they? Who came on? Garces. Garces. He, he looked very very average. So. Yeah, it was a bizarre substitution, though. 100%. Like, he, Ariton Preciado definitely should have remained. And you know what? Like, I could understand getting Gar- Garces in because, again, Carlos Garces is actually the best uh, player, maybe behind Hernán Barcos, playing on the air in the Ecuadorian tournament, right? For Delfín de Manta, he's the one that sets the ball down and passes towards the, the wingers, right? So he actually is used to that, like getting a long pass getting the ball, controlling the ball, and passing to the wings. So I understand why he was there. I couldn't understand why Ayrton Preciado was the one sobbing out, especially when you have Arroyo on the field, when you have Renato Ibarra on the field. That made absolutely no sense to me. Jorge Stelico really, really got his players wrong because maybe his tactics were to play on the air. But again, if you're playing on the air, where are your crossers? Right, you're probably one of the best crossers in the world, and I don't say because Ecuadorian, he's Ecuadorian, but Tonio Valencia is one of the best crossers in the world, and you have him, you have him hiding back as a right back, especially considering the great form that Pedro Velasco is in. Like Bar- Barcelona is playing in the semifinals of Copa Libertadores now with Pedro Velasco playing as a right back, and you have Tonio Valencia playing there, so you can get Renato Ibarra on the field. That made absolutely no sense, and just. The cherry on the pie, or I think that's expression. Or I might get it wrong. I don't know. But then Michael Arroyo, so after we tie the game, which a very good play by Roberto Latu Cordones, which he holds the ball, he crosses in, and Romario Ibarra scores. Of, uh, and Romario Ibarra is one of the players that played for, for Celico in Católica. So I think that was a pretty nice moment to have him sub in and then have him score. That was great. But like two minutes after that, Michael Arroyo does a fancy play, a flair play for no reason at all, complicating and putting Jacob Murillo in a very difficult position. By the way, Jacob Murillo was made total sense to be on the field. He's probably one of the three best players for the Fin de Manta this year who's going to win the Guadalajara tournament. Well, he's, they're the top favorites at the moment. I'm sorry, I won't get carried away. No, and then Jacob Murillo loses the ball childishly, and then... Chile takes advantage and scores, right? You cannot give a, a team like Chile, an experienced team, a team that needs to win that kind of opportunity. I'm pretty sure that Ecuador has to win in, I mean, ha, has to be the leader in like childish goals scores again, scored against. Those two goals that Chile scored were childish, were rookie mistakes, were embarrassing. I, I, don't, I don't think there's a better word for that than embarrassing. So... Ecuador is eliminated from the World Cup, completely deserved. 
there's a lot to learn about this. I think there's opportunity for two things in Ecuador. A, you have to invest in grassroots. It's time to Ecuador starts working on their youth academies and start investing in age groups low, younger than uh, the 12 years old. Because that's where the, the real development starts. And that's when you start transitioning from, from talent to actual real football players. And B, Ecuador needs a real coach. A real experienced coach that has won, has been there, has done it before, and actually has the personality and the ego to A, handle the Ecuadorian Football Federation, which is a complete disaster, and B, control the locker room. There's players that think that they can actually control the locker room and their influence are beyond as players, and that should not happen. And for that to be controlled, you need a real coach. Sorry, briefly, how, how do you think Ecuador will approach a game against Argentina? You know, how much effort do you think they're going to put into it? Because obviously I'm very worried from a Chilean perspective about that. Uh, Adam, I wish I could be more optimist. If I'm extremely honest with you, I will say that the players that are wearing that jersey for the first time are going to go out and prove, prove their worth. But if you feel players that have nothing to prove and that have already failed to get the court to the World Cup, their performance will, won't be up to the task. So I wouldn't be optimistic about, or I wouldn't count on Ecuador for getting the result for you, even if we play as a home team. Because as you know, we've been a complete failure playing in home this World Cup, which has always been our main strength, right? So... I'm sorry. Yes, certainly. Austin, I know that you've got probably a couple of thoughts on this game, maybe something to say about Valdivia and also, of course, something to say about Brazil on Tuesday. You know, do, do you think that Brazil will want to show just how much they dislike Argentina? Uh, no, I don't think that's going to play a factor into it. I don't think that's Cheech's style. He's not that type of manager to deliberately throw away this this clean record that Brazil have at in home World Cup qualifiers for the sake of spiting Argentina. But I will say, Adam, that it was wonderful to see Jorge Valdivia playing such a key role for Chile and doing so well. And I would like to point out that this match for Chile, away to Brazil, being played in Sao Paulo at Palmeiras' stadium, you know who's a Palmeiras club legend? Jorge Valdivia. I think that's a pretty good omen for Chile. Think Valdivia will love being back home. I don't even think any Palmeiras fans in attendance could ever boo Valdivia. It single-handedly kept Palmeiras up in 2014. Just a wonderful player for the club. Just a wonderful player, period. I think Chile have what it takes that they can get a point here. I think a win is is stretching it. But as you said, Adam, that point might be enough. How do you think Pizzi will approach this match? It is so intriguing. Does he play to try and hang on to a point? Does he sit back? Does he try to go forward and score? What do you think will be the Chilean approach to, to try to break down this Brazil side that have been absolutely flying? To be honest, I can't see Valdivia starting there in Brazil. Well, that's a shame. I, I think, yeah, I think Pizzi's going to go for a more secure approach to start with, although it may depend on, on exactly who is available for the game. So if, if Arangis doesn't pass a fitness test, then in that scenario, I can see Chile being forced to maybe play Valdivia and go for it a little bit more. I think the plan has to be that Chile keep this game 
as tight as possible for as long as possible. The last thing Chile want here is to go a goal down early in the game because not only would it be a blow to them because they would then have to chase the game, um, but also it would of course be a huge boost to the rest of the to the rest of the field here competing for those last um, two and a half three places up for grabs um, in Russia. So yeah, I've, I think Chile's tactics got to be to keep it tight, especially without their you know arguably their best player or at least one of the two best players. I'll do over now that that is a huge blow for this game and certainly should give all the other teams they're competing against extra, extra hope going into this. It's going to be interesting how they try to compensate his, his absence, his absence, because we've seen the in this kind of game, you know, do the work of two men. That's one thing I think Chile really going to find it hard to replace. One thing I do think it will also come down to just how motivated Brazil are. Okay, you know I'm sure that they that they want to win it. If if it kind of meanders on and it's looking like it's going to be a draw, how much effort they then go out to to really go for it and win it? I'm yeah, I'm I'm not so sure that they'll be too bothered, especially after I think the trip to La Paz, which we we'll come on to later seems to have taken quite a lot out of, out of them as well. So I'm not sure what their energy levels will be like heading into this match either. It's, it's, it's going to be a fascinating match-up. And um, overall, I'm still not too confident, to be honest. But if Chile can keep it, like I say, nil-nil for as long as possible in this game, you know, obviously their chances increase greatly. Adam, as you said, important to note here, simultaneous kickoffs in all five of the matches on the final match day. Of course, that's what you'd expect, but with Comnable, you never quite know. Uh, has been confirmed, so all of those matches will kick off at the same time, so there will be uh, plenty of announcements going on in stadiums, yeah. you know, official one, and unofficial. <laughs> well, one possible uh, good omen for Chile, actually, and then into this match is, uh, I, f- I forget his name, but they've got uh, Ecuadorian referee for the game against Brazil and he also refereed the 2-0 win in Santiago right back at the start of this qualifying campaign. I think it's worth mentioning just in case people don't know it's a repeat of all the first fixtures we had in the qualifying campaign and there were some surprising results in that and uh, and another one we come on to earlier with Ecuador beating Argentina um, in, in Buenos Aires so it's, it's certainly going to be a fascinating last round of games. And um, Austin, shall we move on to Argentina-Peru? I know that you watched that one. I only saw kind of extended highlights of it. From what I saw, Messi was trying to do too much, as usual. And kind of Argentina missed a series of kind of glorious opportunities to win the game. Peru had a couple of chances themselves to cause a major upset, but... They're obviously delighted with the point and they know that they are now one win Colombia at home uh, away from their first World Cup since 1982. Yeah, I think, as you said, Adam, Peru are are absolutely delighted with the point. They started with that point and it never left them. A nil-nil draw for Peru was a positive result. I think you are a bit unfair to Messi. Uh, I didn't feel like he was trying to do too much. I actually thought he had a brilliant match. Um 
there have been plenty of times when I've been fairly critical of Messi in an Argentina shirt. It kind of came out wrong. I, I didn't mean it necessarily in a negative way. From what I saw, you know, he did his best to create as much as possible for his teammates, but his teammates couldn't quite convert the chances that he laid on. Yeah, I think that's that's a perfect description of it. He put uh, Dario Benedetto in, in wonderful positions on multiple occasions. He had a couple of chances himself. Sure, he could have taken a few free kicks better, but for the most part, I found Messi to be brilliant for Argentina in this match against Peru. Unfortunately for him, the rest of his team wasn't necessarily, and, and that cost Argentina. It's now a, a third consecutive draw for the Argentines, including back-to-back draws at home. This one against Peru, the one before against Venezuela. Argentina, as, as you probably know, took the step of moving this match from its usual, their usual home stadium, the Monumental, where River Plate play, to the more, shall we say, cozy La Bombanera, where Boca Juniors play. They were looking for as dramatic of an atmosphere as they could find. And it felt like they had it. And at the start, the, the crowd was bouncing. They were into it. There was a lot of energy. And what I was maybe most impressed with in this match by Peru was that they weathered that. They understood that the first 15 to 20 minutes are going to be the most difficult 15 to 20 minutes. They probably saw what happened to Jorge Wilsterman and the Copa Libertadores. They took the punch from Argentina early. I thought Gaese, the Peruvian goalkeeper, was very good, very solid, composed, strong all night. He was that early, and then Peru kind of built into the match from there. Again, at at no point did Peru really ever control this match, or did they look incredibly dangerous. The final kick of the match was actually a free kick in a really good position for the Flamengo striker, Paulo Guijero. He actually put a really good foot into it, and, and Sergio Romero had to go over and make a save, or else Peru could have absolutely taken all three points from this match right through the back door, which would have been incredible. They weren't able to do that. But if I'm fans, not sure. I'm not. I'm not sure they would have got out alive. If that had come <laughs> yes. <in>. Yes. <laughs> Maybe better off for them that they only got one point here. Uh, but yeah, Argentina just looked disjointed. I don't know. It was just like missing one step. Is is kind of the uh, the way I think to best describe it. Messi was there, but then the finishes. It wasn't that the finishing was absolutely dreadful. It wasn't that Benedetto, the Boca Juniors man who started as the number nine with Sergio Aueto injured. It wasn't that Benedetto was appallingly bad with his finishes. It was just they just missed that clinical touch. He had a couple of positions where he was in kind of one-on-one with Gaese. And instead of trying to pick a spot in the corner, he just blasted his shot and tried to go through the Peruvian goalkeeper. To his credit, Gaese did a really good job of blocking shots, of kind of getting down and making himself big. And that helped Peru. Benedetto had one header right before halftime that he just didn't get the angle right and, and mistimed his jump just that little bit. And it went just over the crossbar instead of just under the crossbar. So it, it wasn't for me that Argentina were appallingly poor in this match, but they were just missing that something that they needed. And that was just a clinical finisher that they didn't have. I thought Peru, for the most part, defended Messi as well as, as it could have been hoped for. They threw numbers at him. When Messi got into space, it wasn't because Peru forgot about him. It was because he had weaved through two or three defenders and left them behind to get his shot off. So I thought Ricardo Gareca and Peru have been one of the highlights, especially on the backstretch of this competition, the backstretch of these qualifiers, and they did it again. They didn't try to do too much in this match, and they've set themselves up in a situation where now, all right, you have Colombia at home, 
a World Cup on the line, you get three points, you're all but assured of a spot of Russia, go take it. And I think that's the position that had you asked any Peruvian player, manager, any Peruvian citizen, you know, a year ago, if Peru have a chance, final match day at home against Colombia to win to go to the World Cup, would you take it? The answer is obviously unequivocally yes. And that's the position Peru have gotten themselves into. And I think they deserve a lot of credit for that. Simon, for Argentina, you know, a lot of people will look at this and say, oh, a team of Argentina's talent, how could they be in this situation? And Simon, I think frankly, the answer is because they haven't played good football. 17 matches, 16 goals. They've only conceded 15, but you have to score more than the rate that Argentina have scored at with the talent that they have. Uh, They are left wanting yet again now three straight draws for Argentina. They are currently outside of the World Cup with a tricky trip to Quito and Ecuador to come on the final match day. Simon, what do you make of where Argentina is at right now? And do you think they can do enough on Tuesday? And at this point, anything for Argentina is enough uh, to get into that fifth place spot and stay alive or, or even somehow slip into the World Cup at this point. They would take that. Do you think they have what it takes? Yeah, I mean, when you mentioned the 15 goals against, I mean, it could have been more. I, you know, I think one of the reasons why they've been relatively effective in defence is because they have a lot of possession high up the field and teams are often worn down from, you know, some tenacious defending. But against against some, you know, high-pressured attacks and against some direct attacking football, which is what they may face in Ecuador. It's what, it's what Ecuador were producing for the first year of qualification. Um, they could be in trouble still. I mean, I, I think the defence last night was, again, you know, they, was, they went up, up against a lot. Peru were missing Carrillo, who is a pacey winger. Very, very important for them. Also, Cueva, who's kind of the key creative player. And again, that did allow them to be more compact and, and tight and focus on defensive work. But if, if you threw that into the mix, they, you know, they could have got a goal. Guerrero was very, very isolated, but he still created a few chances. He still had the beating one-on-one with the Argentine defenders. And obviously they've gone from three to playing more four at the back, but it still felt isolated for the centre-backs. You know, there's still a lot of, you know, a lot, a lot of focus on, on attacker midfield. And in terms of the attacker midfield, you know, Messi, he was working so hard. I had to feel for him because with Barcelona, he will make those individual darts past two or three players and put one on the, on a plate for, for a striker or he'll hit, hit one from range, or he'll, he'll, you know, a perfect through ball will come out of nowhere. But the reason he's able to do that so consistently is because he has other options. He can play it simple and get it back. He has Iniesta, who's creative. He can, you know, play it to Suarez. He has a lot of players around him who are going to do similar things and be able to be contribute to a similar level. It feels for Argentina that Messi knows that if he passes it to someone around him, the momentum of the mood is, is gone. He, it feels as though he, if he doesn't do it, nobody will, which is crazy for the, the talent Argentina have. But it's so flat when he doesn't have the ball. When Messi's not involved, they don't look very good. And in terms of last night, again, another night they win 4-5-0. But that doesn't, say, that doesn't mean they play particularly well, even so. They were unlucky. Messi had some chances. Uh, you know, a, a shot that, a corner that was pulled back, well worked and and he shot on goal and it was deflected wide. It was unlucky. You know, they, they had a lot of good chances. But they don't look like a very good team. They have an incredible player who does his best. But 
it's quite easy to defend against that. You just put two players on Messi as soon as he gets the ball, don't dive in, stand off. As long as he can't shoot, then you're pretty safe. And that's, you know, he's an incredible player. He makes things happen from nothing. He had some amazing shots, inches wide. He put some balls straight into the box right for the forwards. But he's not laying off, moving and getting it back like he does for Barcelona. He's trying to wriggle his way past three close markers to then try and make that pass. So there's something fundamentally wrong with Argentina. I mean, also last night, it was very sad to see Gargle come on and then get injured. There's been some jokes about that, but... You know, he's, it's just really unfortunate for your player. But again, that hit Argentina as well. They made two changes, uh, one at half time and one shortly after. And with uh, Gaga having to uh, to then go off a few minutes later, it meant that they didn't have the opportunity to bring on someone like Dybala, who, again, isn't necessarily working particularly well with Messi. Or, you know, another forward, Icardi, perhaps would have come on. So it did limit them somewhat. But with two defensive midfielders sitting quite deep and not really pushing on, you know, relying on the wingers and Messi to just make something happen. They're not very good at the moment, Argentina. They've got great players, but they're not a very good team. And as things stand, unless they can up their game, and that may well happen, we've all been waiting for it to click. Maybe it will happen against Ecuador. Um, but until it happens, Argentina don't deserve to be at the World Cup. Ecuador, I think, are a sort of team who, if they go to win the game, and why wouldn't they at this point? But if they remain disciplined, which is more more of the bigger question... Now, I think they could hurt Argentina. I've said a, you know, a, few, a few times on, on this program that at fullback is where Argentina are vulnerable. Even if they play with out-and-out fullbacks, I still think the, the Ecuadorian options that they have can, can get at them. And if you put some balls into the box, I think you'll score against this Argentinian team. So we'll have to see what happens. Uh, Ecuador may come into it keen to make send a message and, and assert themselves and, and kind of leave on a high note into what has been a a campaign in decline for the past year uh, or they may come with it a bit lackluster and, and Argentina may profit from that we'll have to see how things go in the final game and I think you're exactly right Simon Ecuador are the perfect type of team to attack Argentina defensively you just look at them Argentina were so wide open even against a Peruvian team that as you said didn't offer all of that much on the counter without Carillo without Cueva those are players they'll get back for their matchup with Colombia Argentina just so wide open that pace that strength from Ecuador I think can really really give them problems again motivation could be a big question for Ecuador but if Ecuador show up for that match and they're ready to play and as you said why not at least go out on a high note at this point you're at least at home in front of your fans an opportunity for Ecuador to really make life difficult for Argentina and Adam Argentina haven't been all that great away from home in these qualifiers no uh, we were discussing pre-pod and you know we were looking at their record and it's actually one year since they last scored away which is remarkable if you think of the kind of the arsenal that they that they have in attack there. It's 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 an incredible record. But there's been a lack of goals generally in in this World Cup qualifying series at the moment. You know, five of the last fifteen games have finished nil nil. Three of them, of course, this week alone. But another thing to note here, you know, Argentina have a pretty terrible record at altitude. Uh, they've not won in Quito for about 20 years. But what I will say is that Ecuador looked pretty poor against Chile, I thought. And certainly seeing those highlights from the Argentina-Peru game, if, if Messi can repeat that kind of level of performance, 
that he showed against Peru in this game, then I can certainly see Argentina winning this one, certainly against an Ecuador side, which, of course, have nothing to play for. It's certainly not going to be easy for for Argentina, I don't think, just simply because at the moment they're finding it very difficult to score goals. They don't have a great record at altitude. You just feel that Sampaoli just, for some reason, hasn't quite got the team to quite together yet and playing for him like he usually does so quickly in, in the other sides he's managed in recent years where things have clicked you know pretty much instantly yeah it's uh it's, it's going to be fascinating but you know I, th- I think Argentina's slow back line if Ecuador can exploit that by playing some of their quicker players then I then I then I feel that you know Argentina are in serious trouble of missing their first World Cup since um well, I think the last time they failed to qualify was for 1970 World Cup, where they were famously denied by Peru there as well. I'm sure people have read all the articles about that in the last week. But yeah, what's your gut feeling, Austin? Argentina are going to make it or not? I don't know. I mean, again, logic just tells you, yes, there's simply too much on the pitch for them to continue to falter. But then you look and they've played 17 matches and scored 16 goals in the, in the entirety of Conmebol World Cup qualifying. It's not as though Argentina have just fallen into a rough patch. They've been poor for the majority of this competition. And if they miss the World Cup, it's not a big loss because they fully wholeheartedly deserve it. It's on the basis of their performance. They haven't been robbed. They haven't been hard done by. There's no controversy here. Argentina simply have not been good enough. Their play has not been at the level that it takes to qualify for the World Cup in Conmebol. And now they've left themselves with a task to do against a tricky Ecuador side to try and finish this off. Simon, before we move away from this match, I want to get your thoughts on Peru and Colombia on the next match day. Again, everything to play for for both of these teams. Colombia on 26 points, currently in the last automatic spot. Peru on 25 points in the playoff spot but only on virtue of goals scored has them ahead of Argentina. Goal differential is level, but if they can match Argentina's result, they are guaranteed to finish in front of the Argentines, barring something completely miraculous in the goals scored category. What do you make of this Peru-Colombia match? Do you think Peru have what it takes to make that step and make that World Cup? Will Colombia's kind of experience and and the fact that they've qualified for the last World Cup play a factor? Or would you maybe pick a draw between these two sides? Because that could be mutually beneficial for both, depending on other results. In terms of Colombia and Peru, you know, I think Peru are going to have, with the home support, are going to be pushed to get the win. I think it's important for both teams to go into this game accepting a draw, but not playing for one. Uh, you know, a draw depends upon results elsewhere, and that can't be the approach to the game. I think Peru are going to be looking to win the game. I think in some ways, Colombia and Peru are quite similar in terms of their strengths both have a kind of a talismanic number nine in Falcao and Paulo Guerrero they both have Cueva and James Rodriguez who are kind of the creative midfielders uh, Carrillo and Cuadrado are the you know the wingers in the in the attack um, I think overall on paper Colombia are a little stronger uh, um, but Peru have proved themselves far more organized and disciplined this week whereas Peru whereas Colombia collapsed and you know, up against Guerrero, if Davinson Sanchez and Christian Zapata get in each other's way, he's going to be straight there to pounce. Uh, Farfan, I think, is suspended for this game. But as I mentioned, with Cueva and Carrillo coming in, I think Peru are going to be 
probably stronger overall. So it's it's a concerning one for Colombia. You know, I think perhaps on the counter attack they're going to have the pace to get at Peru, especially with the fullbacks. I think Colombia can double up well on the wings, but they need to be disciplined. They need to track back. They need to cover. So I am concerned that some of the tactical errors that that Peckham made. If they make them against Peru, Peru again is another team that's shown to be quite disciplined this week. A team that has good players, has creative players. Cueva can make something from nothing, can can score from range. Carrillo can get in behind. So Colombia are going to have to be on their game. I think they have the the weapons in their arsenal to attack Peru and, and get those goals they need. But they're going to have to be very much disciplined and organised away from home. Hopefully the result this week focuses the mind and makes it clear that they can't take anything for granted and they go into this game in a in a committed way. Um, but again, they may be deflated and it may it may affect them next week. So it's anxious, it's tight. I think Colombia need to go for the win. Um, but hopefully if they can't achieve that, then results elsewhere do, do them a favour. Yeah, I think one thing it's worth noting here about this game is that I don't think any of these Peru players will have ever had a match in their lives with so much pressure on it. Um, so it's going to be fascinating to see them as a team deal with that pressure and also the expectation now around it because, you know, Peru are kind of favourites to qualify now. There's that feeling that the home crowd are going to expect them to win. They're, they're going to go a bit like how the Colombians went to the stadium there back here the other day against Paraguay, you know, they're going there expecting to have fun, expecting to have a party at the end of it. But, you know, in reality, it's going to be a nerve-wracking 90 minutes where, you know, so much can go wrong. You've also got the distraction as well. This is going to be one of the interesting, the other interesting things about this last round of fixtures. You know, you've also got the distraction of kind of the the latest scores coming in from the other games, which could completely change the tactical approach of, of these sides. So, you know, just one example, if if Peru and Colombia hear that Chile are 3-0 down or something, then I'm pretty sure that they're going to suddenly think a draw might not be a bad result here. Or obviously, I think that also depends kind of on how Paraguay and Argentina are doing too. But yeah, there's so many scenarios, so many possibilities. I actually read this week that there's 243 scenarios, possible scenarios, heading into this last round of fixtures. Um, from a Chile point of view, Chile qualifying 164 of the 243 scenarios, um, which gives them kind of a, you know, mathematically, it gives them a 67% percent chance of qualifying directly but obviously realistically that's that's a few percent lower because it doesn't take in in quite a few factors like i keep saying it is it's going to be a really fascinating last round of matches and it's just going to be who deals with the pressure and expectation the best anyway austin there was also a game earlier in the evening which i believe you watched uh, between uruguay and venezuela and once again one of our favourites here at the World Football Index, had an incredible game. So maybe you want to speak a little bit about him and, and the game in general. Yeah, Adam, it's, uh, it's Farinha's time, I think is, is the best way to describe Ooh. this. 
Three minutes into this match, Wilker Farinas showed once again why he's such a fantastic goalkeeper. Uruguay had a good chance to, to jump out early in this match. Farinas sprung into his top corner and managed to push the ball over for just a fantastic save. And it just continues the magnificent run of form he's been on. He wasn't called upon as much against Uruguay as he was against, uh, against Argentina in the last window. But I thought Fadinez was once again brilliant for Venezuela and, and, and a big part of the reason that, that they were able to get the point from this match. For Uruguay, look, I, I think it's somewhat disappointing that they didn't officially, officially wrap up a World Cup spot in this match. But all things considered, it's a good performance for them. They're in a position where they would need some really wonky goal differential to go against them on the final match day to drop into the playoff. And even then, that is all hindered upon them losing to Bolivia at home, which is is not something that, that anyone does in Conmebol, really. So Uruguay are 99.99% of the way there to Russia. They haven't always looked impressive, but I think it's deserved for them because I think they are just that minuscule level maybe ahead of the teams behind them in the table. And they have the ability to see out results in matches like this. They weren't on their best, but they didn't allow Venezuela to find much footing in this match. Musleta had, had a pretty impressive save in the second half to keep this match at nil-nil. But beyond that, Tabata's side were, were composed. They were good on the ball. I was really impressed by Gia Hascaeta, the Cruzeiro midfielder. For the 10 or so minutes that he was in the match, I thought he was brilliant. He's a player that I would like to see get on the pitch against Bolivia. I think you give him a chance to try and break down that Bolivian backline that, that we would expect to sit deep in a match away from home. I think a lot of success could be had for Uruguay. And he's a player that going into the World Cup, I'll be very, very intrigued to see how he gets on at Cruzeiro. And then as well with the Uruguayan squad, I think Tabatas really rates him. I think he is still trying to find that fit at Cruzeiro, mainly because he did suffer an injury this year and that kind of kept him out of the lineup. But with Cruzeiro playing the Libertadores next year, I think Gia Hascaeta could be a really, really key player in kind of that traditional number 10 role for Uruguay as they head to the World Cup. So Simon, for Uruguay, not terribly impressive against Venezuela, but they'll take the point and they'll take the fact that they only need a point against Bolivia to, to lock up this spot in Russia. And I think it deserved for them. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's a team, obviously, uh, with you know, four standout players, the two defenders, uh, Jimenez and Godin, and the two centre-forwards, Cavani and Suarez. Um, a lot of what they do well is is surrounded on these two players with uh, the two defenders holding things together, keeping things very tight at the back, and the two strikers, two centre-forwards. Not many clubs, in, not many sides in world football play uh, two strikers together. But when you have Suarez and Cavani, that's, that's definitely the best thing to do. And they're very good in the counter-attack. In some games, Uruguay are under pressure, but they always have the outlet. They can always, even if they have everyone else behind the ball, if they've got Suarez and Cavani up front, it always gives the opposition something to think about. And that's very, very important for this Uruguayan side. That, com combined with some of the younger players coming through, Valverde, uh, Valverde also had another good game. Betancourt came on as well. So I think that's kind of the interest now for Uruguay. They have this base. They have these two good centre-backs. They have a goalkeeper who's, who's fine. They have two good centre-forwards. Uh, the full-backs are okay. And they have a lot of interesting young players that they can now look to incorporate in the next seven or eight. See, what, see where they can get with that. 
But I think Uruguay is a team that's always difficult to play against. They won't give, any, won't give away many easy goals and they're always dangerous, even when you think they have them. Suarez and Cavani on the counter link up well and can make something out of nothing. So it's a team that will not dominate many games at the World Cup, but it's a team that can always cause an upset and can always stay in games uh, because of their organisation and because of those two dangerous world-class forwards. Adam, surely Uruguay aren't going to bottle this against Bolivia. Surely, right? <laughs> They're in, Austin. It's, it's not even up for discussion. Pretty uh, much it's convable, side. man. It's convable. Come on. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a, basically as guaranteed as, as, you know, as possible. There's basically one scenario where they don't qualify, and that is even beyond kind of Leicester winning the Premier League levels yeah. times I think, 100. So, I think we need to hope that they've got their registration forms in order. Or, you know, oh, yeah. Admin, well, yeah. admin is the... Admin That's, is the uh, but that, that is the one thing which could possibly stop them. But even, I think, a 3-0 defeat to Bolivia, they would be fine. So, yeah, it's... Uh, no, Uruguay are in. Congratulations to them. They frustrate me at times because I think they can be so much more than what they are. They play like they are kind of a functional limited side where I think they've got the talent there in their ranks to be a lot more expansive and exciting side to watch, especially the fact that they've got quality central defenders as well to protect them. It's going to be interesting to watch Uruguay's development over the next few years with such great talent coming through. I I think they will head into the World Cup next year as a team, but not many teams will want to get in their group or, or face in a knockout round. I, th- I think that's fair to say. Um, one quick thing on on our friend uh, Farinas. He's got the best um, save percentage in uh, out of all the goalkeepers which have played, um, I think, more than five games in the in, in these uh, in these World Cup qualifiers. He's the third Venezuelan goalkeeper. Um, to make more than five appearances, which show kind of the stages Venezuela have gone through in this qualifying campaign. Yeah, he's he's got an eighty percent save percentage, so it's a it's a very impressive record. Alison of Brazil is next on the list. You know what is fantastic about Wilker Farinas is that you can drop all the stats you want. Like this, his numbers are amazing, but he passes the eye test as smoothly as he passes the numbers test, right? His save in the first minute, first play against Uruguay was amazing. And the way he has performed against Argentina, against Colombia, he's a monster. Um, I just love him to watch. Like, I love to watch him play. It's it's impressive. I cannot wait what holds the future for him. His, his potential is insane. It's incredible. Well, yeah, well, just off the back of that, one thing because we haven't really, we didn't really mention it earlier, and that and that's Paraguay's chances of of going to Russia next year. Obviously, you know, with that win over Colombia, they've given themselves a, de- a decent shot at it. But ultimately, they've got to find a way of of getting past this great young Venezuelan goalkeeper that we can't stop praising here. <laughs> And you know Farinas and Venezuela are going to be motivated for it because they have already shifted gears. They are in 2022 mode. Obviously, any points they pick up won't count towards that. But they definitely think they definitely think that they can kind of spoil the party for Paraguay. And, and Farinas will be a big reason for that. Let's move to the final match 
of that we've yet to talk about. Not a lot to break down in this one, so we will keep it brief. Brazil nil, Bolivia nil. I thought Brazil were the better side on the afternoon in La Paz. I thought they created the best chances. Uh, but Carlos Lampe, the Bolivian goalkeeper, played really well. Some saves he made with his hands, others he made with his face, but they all counted the same. Gabriel Jesus and Neymar were frustrated. Again, for Brazil, this match really meant nothing, nothing at stake. I was a bit surprised by the team selection uh, to see kind of the strength that Cheech chose to send to this match. We'll see if it affects them against Chile. Obviously, Adam, I know that you are hoping that they are. But for Brazil, look, not a lot to take away. Don't read too much into this match. I thought Brazil played fine. They didn't embarrass themselves. Uh, Thiago Silva got injured, which is a bit of a concern. Rodrigo Caio has been called into the squad in his place. Rodrigo Caio is not going to feature, but just a note there. Uh, Adam, for Brazil, the biggest question is probably coming from Chile. How have Brazil responded to this match in La Paz, and how will they then play in Sao Paulo at the Allianz Parque against Chile, right? Yeah, I, I think my biggest concern is that Brazil will want to give their fans like uh, a real send-off because this will probably be their last game in front of their home supporters before they go to the World Cup next year because I suspect what will happen from this point onwards is that Brazil will play friendlies kind of all over the world, uh, mainly in Europe, I suspect, before that World Cup in Russia next year. So... So, yeah, they're going to probably want to go out in style. And also, you know, I think I touched on it earlier, but they're going to want to protect that record of never having lost a World Cup qualifier at home. So, yeah, I, I think Argentina, Colombia, Peru and Paraguay fans can, can rest easy. I, I, I don't think Brazil will give Chile a free pass here. It would be silly of Brazil, I think, to, to throw that that record away that that stellar kind of mark that they have for the sake of trying to spite another South American side that's not what this Brazil team are going to do uh, that's not who this Brazil team are that's not who Cheech is as a manager it's so these convoy qualifiers are, are just so crazy to think that we were legitimately having the discussion at one point during these qualifiers could Brazil actually miss a world cup that's how poor they looked under Dunga. That's how poor they started this qualification cycle. But the second Cheech took over after Copa America Centenario, it's been brilliant for Brazil. And, and they have deservedly run away with the Conmobile qualifiers. And they have deservedly left their mark on this competition as, as pretty much far and away, I think, the best team in South America at this point. And, and they head to the World Cup, you know, still a long ways away, but, but with a lot of momentum behind them. Javi, what, what did you make of, of this one and of Brazil and what they've been able to do in Conmebol? Brazilian Brazil's record is amazing. And it just watching Brazil play, it just reminds me how much how many people like discredit uh Paulinho when he joined Barça because he was a failure in Tottenham. And that just shows that people really like to talk without actually checking the Checking the facts. And if you saw Paulinho play for Chich, I, I really struggle to pronounce his name in English. For me, it's Tite. But my point being is that um, if you saw him play for Brazil, he was amazing. And what Chich has been able to create in this Brazil, even like already being qualified, like the game against Bolivia was extremely entertaining. That first half was super entertaining. The second half was 
entertaining as well. So his job, his record, the numbers talk by themselves. But I just want to establish one thing. I'm very extremely jealous of Venezuelans, of Bolivians, and from of Paraguayans. Like the heart that their team shows. Even a Bolivian para a Bolivian and and Venezuela with no chance to get to the World Cup, the heart with with, with, with how they play every game is enviable because Ecuador had chance to go to the World Cup and they didn't show that, that fire, that desire to, to go. Whereas Venezuela and Bolivia and obviously Paraguay have proven that, has shown that. And I'm just extremely jealous. I, like, I think that they reserve a lot of credit to show, actually to show up for the games and going for it. So like props to them. We'll see if you still feel that way after Bolivia takes the pitch in Montevideo against Uruguay. Because as we know, Bolivia away from La Paz, <laughs> a much different team than Bolivia in La Paz. But we'll see. We'll see. Listen, guys, we have run on. It's been that great uh, of a World Cup qualifying round that, that we did have to take all of this time. We'll be back to break down those matches on Tuesday. We will know who is going to the World Cup from South America. We will know who is facing New Zealand in that critical playoff. Again, you'd favor a lot of these South American sides, but it's football, so you never know. Let's wrap up quickly. If there's anything you guys want to plug, where the listeners can find you on Twitter. Adam, I'll start with you. You can follow me on Twitter at AdamBrandon84. Uh, follow me on there for latest news about the Commonwealth World Cup qualifiers and more. And Simon, for you and your long tweets now that apparently you have been gifted and the rest <laughs> of us have not. Somebody gave Simon Edwards the power to tweet with 280 characters. Where can the listeners find those? Yeah, well, I've been using as many as possible. I'm one of those guys who just can't do a short tweet. I have to add something into it. So I've been... I've been granted a long tweet which is much better than a blue tick i think really I, that's a real sign of importance uh, i'm at simon <laughs> i'm at simon edwards saf on twitter colombian stuff mostly mostly very anxious uh on yeah looking forward to that big colombian game and getting out of the way and hopefully looking forward to russia or feeling really really sad so you'll have that emotional breakdown uh, direct to your mobile if you follow me on Twitter. And Javi, I know you were a late arriver to this podcast, but welcome all of the same. Where can the listeners find you on the social media? Thank you for welcoming. Um, you can find me on Twitter at, at ZAVXAV. It's Farinha's time. As it is, it has been all of these qualifiers. We will see if he can pull out one more performance against Padawai to, to spoil the hopes. As for me, I'm on Twitter at Austin underscore James 906. I will do my best to follow the madness on Tuesday in Connable. No promises that I'll be able to keep up with everything, but I will darn sure try. It's going to be fantastic. Very excited for it. Uh, the 15 minutes that we saw when those three matches were going on simultaneously at the very end was just fantastic. We hope for drama more of the same on Tuesday. 90 minutes of hell, I think. <laughs> for some of us, that's why I've got to describe it. 90 minutes of pure entertainment for those of us who are not wrapped up in all of the emotion of this. For those of us whose teams have, have clinched their berth long ago. Uh, be sure to follow the World Football Index on Twitter as well for all of the latest from us. Again, thank you for listening. Uh, we're happy to bring you this coverage. We love the Conmebol World Cup qualifiers. Always the best competition in football. Uh, and we're excited for the end on Tuesday. The end is near but still so much yet to be decided. So thanks for listening. Have a good one. Goodbye.